1: Good afternoon. It's almost, it's almost midnight. It is. It's a late night, but we're dedicated. So uh, after, after doing a very interesting interview, can't wait to drop it. Here we are doing host wraps. Yes.
2: It was a long day for me too, but here we are. All right. So Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, We have a wonderful, wonderful return of Faden
1: Papa Michael. Faden, wait. I mean, I thought that I hit everything that that guy (laughs) ever had to say about anything.
2: Turns out you didn't uh, cover Ford v. Ferrari. I uh, I was
1: Inca- capable of time travel when I interviewed him the first time. So uh, I, I was unaware
2: that he was about to go make another movie called Ford v. Ferrari. Which is great, by the way. And and gorgeous. And gorgeous. And the driving sequence stuff is dynamite. So, I mean, it, it's so good.
1: So comparing uh, Ford v. Ferrari side by side with Rush, which uh, was shot by Anthony Dodd Mantle, how would you compare those two? Oh,
2: man. Uh, they're very different, but I got to give it to Ford v. Ferrari. Oh. I know. I just broke your heart a little.
1: You did. I'm a big... (laughs) I love Anthony Dodd-Mantle's work. Anyway, so Ilya... Sorry, Anthony (laughs) (laughs) Dodd-Mantle.
2: Ford V. Ferrari's fucking great.
1: Well, it it is standing on the shoulders of giants. It is. It is.
2: And and you know what? There's so many movies with wonderful car chase. And I look at a race as a car chase because really that's what it is. It's like a whole bunch of cars chasing the leader car.
1: Okay, so... When I asked you that question, it was kind of loaded because totally loaded.
2: I worked. You set me up. I worked a little bit on Rush. I I knew this.
1: And what I did on Rush was, if you look me up on IMDb, you'll see that I was a concept researcher. Which you'll say, "What the fuck is that?" (laughs) Because it's not really a thing. And um, so they didn't know what else to call you. What they had me do, what Ron Howard uh, had me do, was pick out the brown M and M's. (laughs) No. <laughs> was no. He's okay, not sorry. like. It. He had me cut together. There's, like, I think, five main races in that movie, and mm. then two montages of races. And he had me cut together conceptual races using anything I could find. Like little Animatic. ripomatics. Ripamatics. Not yeah. animatics.
2: But uh, well, well, I anima- mean, you animate part of it. There was a little
1: yeah. bit of animatic because uh, originally uh, Paul Greengrass, I believe, had been attached to direct that movie and he'd worked with a storyboard artist. And so they gave me some boards, yeah. but not much. So I was able to bring those into Premiere and After Effects and animate those and move those around. But for the most part, I'm going on YouTube. I'm. Literally buying DVDs of movies like Grand Prix and and oh yeah classics and, and whatnot, and putting it together. And I didn't know Dukes of Hazard. I didn't know jack shit. No, I did. I, I stuck to Formula One okay, car good. racing. Okay, uh, I didn't know jack shit about Formula One. And uh, what I did really was just follow the script, which has all the dramatic beats of each race and each montage. And and try to illustrate that. And it actually gave me a humongous uh, appreciation for these kinds of movies.
2: Nice. Uh, Well, uh, you're going to like this one a lot. Faden calls it a Hollywood movie and it very much is a Hollywood movie. It's got big stars in it like uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon. And it's not the most complex story. But it is a engaging story. And holy crap, when you combine those, uh, all the elements in this, you have something that I think uh, audiences are really going to respond to. It is dynamic. And they made a whole documentary about it now, too, which is also on Netflix.
1: That's cool. And I mean, I also have to say I've never seen a James Mangold film I didn't love. Love. I, I love every James Mangold film I've ever seen. Uh, they, I'm going back to Heavy uh, and Copland. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, God, I, it didn't even click in my head, but yeah, Copland, fantastic. Yeah, Walk the
1: Line. Walk the Line, uh, yeah. I think he made one of my top three favorite comic book movies of all time in Logan.
2: Oh, yeah. Logan is incredible. Yeah.
1: No, so, uh, and, and Faden, uh, Faden didn't shoot any of his uh, X-Men movies, but he shot most of his other movies. Hmm. So uh, it, it's it's uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, to, to seeing Ford v Ferrari. So what is our George Floyd close focus segment about today, sir?
2: Our close focus today is again the streaming services. The streaming services are, are so incredibly uh, impactful and influential now on the world cinema and world television market. And it's not like Hollywood studios haven't been impactful, but the way that the upstart Silicon Valley, you know, streaming services are taking over the world. It's it's something to behold. Uh, Amazon is green lighting uh, productions in Australia. Netflix has pledged 400 million for uh, content to be created in India. I mean, it's it's really it's a it's a new world. I also
1: feel like, you know, and I think we've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but we're getting big dogs in into this world and they're big technology dogs, specifically Apple. And Disney Plus is, I think, shaking up a lot of things and is going to be a major influence in, in streaming. But all the TV networks are trying to catch up. So uh, NBC recently uh, talked about how they're going to have, I think it's called the Peacock or something, that is going to be their streaming service. CBS has CBS All Access like slowly they're all dripping out into that world and i i mean it's not it's not a revolutionary thing to say that there probably won't be cable tv the way that we know it or it will be more of a niche product than it is today probably in the next you know 5 5 to 10 years because it's just becoming too too damn easy to do this but also what's what's happening is the leaders two of the major three of the major leaders in this streaming wars are Amazon, Netflix, and Apple, those are technology companies. They're not really, they did not start as entertainment companies. And so they approach it in a different way. And I think that there's like a little bit of a downside, in my opinion. Not, not that they're incapable of making good stuff. They all make, well, I haven't seen anything on Apple yet, but I'm sure it'll get there. Anyone can hire talented people to make stuff. But like uh, a friend of mine made a film for Netflix. It was on the, and, and it was made for Netflix. And millions of dollars were spent and, and, uh, this person put like over a year of their life into making this movie and it was on the splash page of Netflix for, for like all of two days and then it was gone. And you know, it they were, because this is LA, we had some billboard ads and we had some stuff like that around, but it wasn't, it, it didn't feel like a movie premiere or it didn't even feel like a movie premiere on HBO in the way that like those things are kind of turned into events. And it's more like a technology churn, like they're trying to keep their their subscribers feeling like their feeds are refreshed and there's a new thing for them to look at. And it's more important that there's a new thing than for the streaming services to focus on the thing sometimes. Mm. Amazon, I think, has done pretty amazing stuff in the television world, specifically uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and uh, things like The Man in the High Castle. You know, They're doing great work because they're hiring the right people. I feel like it, it takes a lot of these streaming services a few years to figure out what that is. It took Hulu a while. It took Amazon a while. It took Netflix a while. And then they, they hit the formula and they know what they're doing.
2: But it's still, they're not looking at it like an entertainment company. They're looking at it like a technology company. Hulu, I think, is really interesting. They did a Black Friday special for $1.99 to subscribe. Mm-hmm. And it's like at, at $1.99, uh, and I, I believe that's with the ad-supported model, but still we're talking $24 a year. That's an entire year of more stuff than you could possibly watch yeah. with new stuff constantly being uh, being added to it. With those types of subscription rates, I if all of the services are doing stuff like that, piracy and things and similar, I believe, is going to go away because it's like, why Why would you bother when all this stuff is then so incredibly inexpensive? It's a it's a very interesting space that is going to continue to innovate in ways that I don't think that we can imagine just yet. Uh, But I as much as this is going on, I mean, I feel like I have to mention like uh, traditional theatrical box office uh, fair, like playing with fire. Are you familiar with this uh, family friendly fireman movie that is, uh,
1: uh, in fact, a really good friend of mine wrote it, Dan, Dan, you you were y- queuing me up. For yes, that. I was. I was, yeah. queuing,
2: I was queuing you up for Dan. Queuing
1: so, in for you and
2: in for you and who I'm sure he's not listening to this as well. But like, uh, here's a movie that is playing uh, very well in uh, in all four quadrants, as they say and is reached about $50 million now worldwide in the theater, and it's like there is still a place for the traditional model of going to a theater, paying your, well, in some parts of the country, $750, other places, $15, and that can be a, a business model, and you can you can do very well. The streaming services, uh, they're very opaque in how the projects are doing, and uh, if you miss your window, maybe it'll come back again, and maybe it'll find an audience, but I, I almost feel like Content has never been more disposable with the streamers at, yeah. at the helm. So, Well, I, I think you
1: hit on it by even just saying the word content. Like, I kind of have a bug up my ass about I content. I know.
2: I, I hate it, too, but it's it's the catch-all.
1: No, I get it, but I feel like content is what you say when you created the perfect thing to watch something on. And, yeah, here's the crap that you'll watch on it. Like, to me, you know, content is like It's the, not a movie. It's the filler. Content is, and, yeah. And, and, and to me, like the main attraction is the movie the con, you know, YouTube is a perfect example, and I watch as much <sighs> YouTube as the next person. But it's like they created the, this perfect vehicle for content to get content out to people, so that people could be content creators. And it's like it makes the work meaningless to refer to it as content. I mean, I understand it's not literally art. Literally, everything is. on Earth is content. You know, like my hair is content. This table we're sitting at is content. Content is a meaningless thing. I like semantics.
2: I like I like that we've gone down uh, this this path of like you know it, it was art it was commerce it's now uh, consumable ephemeral bullshit it's just like now it's something it's it can be a, a time waster the way that you've spent you've spent fifteen minutes or spent well, two hours c- certainly it's like, like sitting
1: around and watching you know people un- unbox Disney toys on on YouTube versus you know going to see the new Martin Scorsese movie The Irishman I would be interested and obviously Netflix will never release these numbers to find out. Since they released The Irishman in theaters and also on Netflix virtually at the same time, yeah, how did it perform in theaters? Because like
2: no, we will never know.
1: No filmmaker. Well, we'll know how it performed in theaters. We won't know how it performed on Netflix. Sure. Uh, but like you know, if there's a filmmaker who's going to make people want to go to the movie theater and sit in a, th- who's going to drive. Uh, Cine-asses to to
2: to be cineasts, <laughs> cineasts to be cineasts. It's uh, it's it's Martin Scorsese to to spend four nearly four hours in the theater. Well, yeah. four hours including three and trailers. And it's three and a half. What were your trailers? Yeah. It's,
1: it's it's a long movie. Look, I mean, it's about as long as uh, Avengers Gandhi. Endgame, right? Yeah. Um, I think they're I think they're about the same length of the movie. Um, no, I, they were not.
2: I uh, know. No, it just felt like that. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's ask. Uh, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola, what he thinks. <laughs> and Martin Scorsese. <laughs> it
1: was. No, but, but uh, I, think, I think it'll be interesting to note because, I mean, like, obviously, it's hard for me to peel myself away from the house to go see anything. And so I did watch The Irishman on Netflix. If all things were equal, I probably would have gone to see it in the movie theater. But how do audiences feel? If you have the choice to go see, if Avengers Endgame, the day it opened in theaters, was also available to stream on Disney+, Plus? yeah, would, the, the would world people, might be very different. Would people not go see it in theaters or would, you know, would there still be a lot of people? I think that there still would be people who are like, this movie commands a giant screen and my undivided attention as opposed to, watching something at home. That being said, you know, um, I was working at D23 Expo, which is a Disney Expo. And uh, when Disney Plus subscriptions went on sale and you could get three years, uh, if you bought three years together, seven bucks or five bucks, it was four bucks a month. It came out to like $120 for three years or it might've been, yeah, I think it's three years. And so I got it. And as soon as it launched, we started watching it. And I actually feel like Disney Plus got something right that I've never seen a streamer get right, which is they have a water cooler show in their first uh, offing. And I know that you don't love The Mandalorian as much as I do, but I feel like it is a water cooler show. I can't talk to people without people having an opinion about Baby Yoda. And I think Disney Plus got that right when you compare like to Netflix's first series. I think it was Hemlock Grove Mm -hmm. was their first series. And then like Amazon had a whole slate of things like Alpha House and like, I'm not trying. Mozart in the Jungle. I'm not trying. Mozart in the Jungle came along later. Mm. I'm not trying to crap on any of these things. I know that like really skilled, awesome people made these things, but none of them like found they weren't anything. water cooler shows. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't get purchased with an audience where people couldn't stop talking about Alpha House.
2: You, you know, uh, water cooler shows are. I think what they all should be going for right now. I really do think that they need to control the conversation. They need to control the eyeballs. They want people to be feeling that their money is well spent. And I think whether it's $24 or whether it's, you know, uh, $10 a month or whatever. The
1: modern version of the water cooler show, I think is something that's memeable. I think if like, if, if all people want to do is make memes out of your stuff, you've, you've knocked it out of the park. And I've seen like no, no shortage of baby Yoda memes. There's a million
2: baby Yoda memes, but I have not seen any Watchmen memes. There might be, but uh, I mean, I, I don't spend all that much time in the, in the, in the you know, in the meeting in the meme Yes, exactly. But I will tell you that like uh, Watchmen on HBO go uh, is every bit of a water cooler, movie, uh, watercolor TV series that I've, that I've, if I've ever seen one,
1: it's something that I can't stop talking about. I don't know that it's uh, taken over the national conversation.
2: I think anyone with with uh, HBO right now is probably. I mean, I mean if you if you made it a few episodes into that, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't found a single person who goes, "Yeah,
1: I'm not into it." Well, again, HBO is soon going. I mean, HBO you can HBO get HBO Max. You can get HBO now, right now, for ten bucks a month, and then HBO Max is going to be Warner Brothers. It's going to be like all of Warner Brothers' library and all kinds of stuff. Basically, the Disney Plus of Warner Brothers. Uh, it will be interesting to see. I'm afraid. That it's going to end up meaning that we're all going to have to subscribe to 27 different uh, streaming services. That's to, what it means. To
2: get what we would ordinarily have just gotten on HBO. That's what it means. A hundred percent. I have a feeling that that is what's coming in our future. You know,
1: and then what someone's going to do is they're going to figure out a way to bundle all of those things.
2: Yes. And they'll and they'll call it Cable Plus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so, so uh, Ben, we should get to the interview and uh, then we'll come back and, and talk about some more stuff like this. And here is Faden Papa Michael.
0: The Cinematography Podcast Interview
2: and Papa Michael, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast again.
3: Uh, You're welcome. Uh, Nice to be here in Torun, Poland.
2: Yeah, we're here because, uh, of course, uh, Ford v. Ferrari is at the Camera Image Film Festival, and it's in competition. It is is
3: in competition, which is great, and uh, it's the birthplace of... Uh, the Golden Frog, so uh, I've been to Kymraimarsch uh, many times, but this first time in Turun and the first time was in 2000, but it was already in Butch, so... Uh, happy to be here.
2: Well, well let's, uh, in the time we've got here, let's talk uh, a little bit about about the production. There's a lot of fast cars. I know you're a car person. Uh, was this fun for you? Was this just like, a, was this a fun job? Or was this, this is work job? It was a, some of both.
3: It was uh, definitely fun. I mean, when when we were actually in pre-production on another film, and it, it fell up through, and then uh, I was always... Uh, looking forward to doing uh, Ford vs Ferrari, and then I got worried that if we do the other movie, Ford vs Ferrari is going to push, and who knows, you know. And because it's a difficult, it's it's expensive to make a period race car movie, number one. Definitely, uh, definitely. You know, there were, the cast wasn't really set, and then we didn't know of Christian, and you know, before everything came together. You know, I was always scared, like I, I won't get an opportunity to do this movie because I was so excited about it. I mean, I love I love racing. I've been watching it since I'm a kid. My dad raced in the 50s. His brother was a very famous uh, race car driver in Greece. I won Rally Acropolis, raced Monte Carlos many times. Um, so, you know, I always grew up around cars. I mean, I'm, I'm born in 62, so, you know, started liking cars cars of that era when I was a kid, you know, watched uh, races on television when I was a kid. I watched Nicky Lauda burn live on television, I mean, when I was 12, uh, you know, so always a fascination with it. And, and then again, you know, uh, my fifth collaboration with James Mangold, who we really have developed a, a kind of a brotherhood with our... A filmmaking style. We're both kind of consider ourselves traditional classic filmmaker, classic Hollywood filmmakers, although we both come from a bit indie world. I mean, he started with Heavy and Copland and I started Roger Corman and but you know, we're both now working in the Hollywood industry and are able to make movies that are not, You know, uh, to spend close to $100 million and not have to do a superhero movie or a Marvel movie, you know, not that I I look down upon those, it's just I'm more inspired by, you know, human adult dramas, uh, strong characters, the way Mangold likes to... Uh, create and, and works with the writing and, and the performances and just creates these solid characters. And, and then, even though this is, a, of course, in some ways an action film, I mean, there's a lot of racing sequences, but it's always important to us to tell it through the perspective of our lead character, in this case, Christian Bale playing Ken Miles, and, and their friendship between Carol Shelby, who's Matt Damon, and and all those just regular non-action aspects of the storytelling are, are still the most important part to to our filmmaking and even the action it's important to us to to tell it through the perspective of you know the main character to see uh you know to experience everything he's experienced to convey what it's like being in a car like that all the the action is almost no cg work in the movie that all Inches from each other, tracking at very high speeds, and and um, it's all coordinated. Even in the close-ups you have in Christian, whatever you see, uh, you know outside the window is really actually uh, happening in a physical, mechanical way. So uh, quite a, a challenge, you know, to to capture all that at these speeds.
2: Uh, th- yes, indeed, and actually, I wanted to ask you about that. Um... The sensation of speed is visceral in this movie. I, I think if uh, that was your goal, you achieved it. It's it's very visceral. From what I can see, it's like all kinds of stuff going on. But I wonder if you might talk about how you yourself decided, or in collaboration with uh, James, uh, figured out what the what the speed element was going to be. How best were you going to do it? Were you going to go with uh, particular angles or particular uh, focal lengths or particular, what says speed for you? And, well, we and,
3: discovered uh, in there early on in testing. I mean, obviously when you watch racing on television and they're panning cars with longer lenses, even in Formula One and then doing 300, over 340 kilometers an hour, it just, it's hard to, you know, experience that speed. So uh, we realized the best way is to be very low, very close to the cars, wide-angle lenses. Uh, but in order to fill the frame, you have to be inches away from these cars, and and start on a tire, and then uh, pull back and have a foreground element cut in like through frame, and again like just the proximity of the camera. And we do the same thing with close-ups. You know, for performances, we don't like punch in on a long lens when we want a close-up. We get in somebody's space and you feel it as an audience that you are there and it applied to the racing as well so the, the close-ups on Christian also you know it's anamorphic expanded anamorphic but a lot of close-ups are a 40 millimeter which is you know like a 20 let's say with expanding the lens to cover the large format Airy Alexa LF it's a different formula but it's still you know we we wanted the anamorphic Panavision lenses, wanted those flare characteristics, wanted I have natural vignetting and fall-off and the focus fall-off of a large format camera which this is the first time we kinda of combined that We these were prototype lenses that we went into. Uh, but you know, like for the speed it was, you know, we also realized a lot of the conventional tracking vehicles and we didn't want any drone shots. We wanted to keep it very much more inspired by Grand Prix or those films from the sexy side. Le Mans, you know, Steve McQueen. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Those documentaries. I mean, Senna, where you just on the driver, you know, close. It's vibrating, no vibration isolators, uh, POVs, what do you see in the mirrors? Just uh, creating the feeling of being in that cockpit. And, and in order to do that, you just actually have to just hard mount, uh, track close, no big Sweeping wraparounds, no drone shots, no, you know, keep it. Russian physical. arms. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the Russian arm wouldn't even work because the, the G-forces are too much uh, forces on the arm. So we had a column, like an elevator rig, we called it, which was on a vehicle like a Russian arm. But we could go up and down, but it's basically on a, on a, on it's a fixed. column. Yeah. So any, But we actually build a, another race car based on our race cars and that could track them around the turns close. and it was, We called it the Frankenstein car and it was just, just like pipes and mounts and you know but had the same kind of chassis and the same engine and could uh, accelerate with them because you know often you're tracking then you have to accelerate away from them or you have to be able to brake and match all sort of the abilities of the car, race cars.
2: You've you've collaborated with James Mangold now several times. Uh, how does this time differ from from the others? Was this a, a different experience in some way? No, I mean it's
3: very you know very similar. We always approach. We don't preconceive too much. Of course, we have to plan uh, the 24-hour sequence, which is over 20 minutes in the movie, was prevised. But we always are open to finding things. I mean we we bring in the actors, we block, we decide on the coverage and the shots right there. I mean we're very fast with we're very much in sync. We like the same kind of approach. So it's it's not really that tedious of a process and and even with the driving stuff we started just keep the camera rolling, do you know, finding things. There's so many lucky accidents that happened so it was like never cut like do this like track you know just pull up you know all the way till you're back in base camp or you know <laughs> till you know i don't care that those condors are in or that's not the right background and like if it's something great that comes out of it we'll use it and uh, very much the same approach open to you know things happening on set i mean even on 310 to yuma you know that whole last chase to the train and gunfight scene, I mean, we like threw that together, like, and it was because we were, you know, out of time and we had to do it in like two days, so, I mean, we're kind of accustomed to it, and, but, you know, he's a real strong filmmaker visually, but also story-wise, so he knows what he needs, and we don't skimp on coverage, I mean, we get the shots, but we know how they're useful to us, and, and it's a bit, you know, designed in our heads, um, so we're very specific with it, and and luckily we have the same taste, and we like the same kind of movies, and uh, you know, of course, it helps being the fifth time we work together, and um, it's just about. You know all the other departments being able to keep up with
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine. And and speaking of uh, keeping up with, I mean, you've got stunts, you've got actions, you've got all this these different things going on. I love car chases in general, and I love uh, car work. And back when I used to be a freelancer, I used to specialize a bit in, in rigging and doing that sort of thing. I'm assuming you destroyed a couple of cameras, maybe one or two on this movie. No,
3: no yeah. cameras.
2: Oh, fantastic! To that, the
3: credit that, of all our drivers. Um, no cameras. Second unit, I think, clipped one, but they didn't lose the lens. I think maybe one map box and one filter, one optical flap.
2: All things considered, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, Green it movie was like great. This. And
3: I mean, also the fact that the cameras didn't break. I mean, in Willow Springs, when we did the opening race, it was 117 degrees. And, and then the cameras, like I said, hard-mounted. Uh, really being exposed to all the G force and the vibrations, the dust in the desert, you know, a lot of desert scenes. It was in a way surprising. Nothing broke and yeah.
2: Well, uh, I am glad I'm glad it, uh, it it made it through okay. And that's a real testament to your crew and to your stunt drivers. Oh yeah, and, I mean excellent
3: camera crew, uh, fantastic operators.
2: Tell me a little bit about working with. I'm assuming these custom modified race cars, which are you know made, designed to look and perform like these um, the, these you know cars out of the '60s. And uh, I know when doing period piece movies, sometimes things don't hold up all the time. Yeah, and I to, mean they you
3: know. not. You know, and we kept pushing Robert Nagel and and the drivers to go faster, and they go, guys, these are picture cars that you build. I mean, we build, you know, yeah. uh, special effects build. I mean, these are not race cars. It's a whole other thing to fine-tune a chassis, to find the right tire configuration. But, you know, they go with well, in this, it. In this configuration, they can go, like you know, in the rain, like 90 miles an hour, when it's not safe. And, you know, then we also have actors with period helmets, which also don't meet the safety, today's safety standards. So even if Christian was in a pod car and being driven around, I mean... You know, it's close-ups. He's wearing this period helmet. It could also only go up to certain speeds. <laughs> because uh, it was just not considered uh, safe. But um, you don't feel it in the film. I mean, I, I know on Rush, we had issues because it was original cars that came with the owners who don't allow, uh, of course, they go. And when we approached our, you know, the, the cars that we're portraying in the film are cost somewhere between, you know, 12 million is probably the cheapest uh, for GT40 oh, yeah. period that has racing history. And then the Ferraris, we had one car and on said we weren't allowed to touch it, but it's sitting in the Ferrari factory. It's the 1961 Le Mans winner. The gto uh, is 47 million dollars.
2: Uh, you know, I, so it's
3: like <laughs> these are like yeah. Oh, yeah, extremely valuable objects. And uh, you know, our cars were expensive. They were probably close to 100,000 maybe each, and we had to build 30. Yeah, yeah. Because there's sequences where you know cars we had to crash a few cars. Yeah, they crash on the camera. Uh, this
2: is based on a true story. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I think there might be some audience members who, who don't know that going in. And then, of course, at the beginning, it says, based on yeah, a true yeah. story. But it's like, it's, uh yeah, you got to be true to it, which means cars crashed. Yeah. So. yeah. Do you have a, a a favorite sequence in this movie? Is there some scene or sequence that you were like, you, you, it really turned out exactly like you wanted? It was really like, or maybe particularly proud of a, a shot or something?
3: Oh, uh, you know, this, uh, I mean, I like... The opening, which is 1959, when we gave it a little bit of a different look, when Carroll Shelby actually races, but uh, yeah, there's one sequence where Ken Miles and his son pull up in the car and they walk on the runway, which was LAX at the time. We had to shoot at this airport at Ontario, Uh, but it was an open airfield next to us, I mean, this, you know, big airport, and then we were very limited with what equipment we could set up, nothing, you know, no... Frames or butterflies or also lights that were blinding pilots and frames could, the wind could pick them up. So we had to, we decided to shoot it at dusk and, you know, basically gave us a 20, 25 minute window to shoot a a fairly long intimate scene where he's talking with his son, so we knew they'd pull up, walk, sit at some point, and, you know, the light was just dropping extremely fast, and we put the oculus head on the dolly we'd, so we don't have to lay track and just could go anywhere, and and then Scott was on, on Steadicam, and we covered the scene probably seven, eight shots with, you know, a child, I mean, not, I mean, he's 13, 12, 13, and then Christian, and, you know did all these setups in 20 minutes and it's it's beautiful light it's after the sun has set and the aircraft landing lights of course they start we started like a you know at an eight and then by the time we're done i'm pushing the camera to 2000 iso and like wide open and two eight on these lenses and all the air, the the airport lights are starting to really glow out and i had one light source for where was motivating office uh, a large number of a number eight that was on the airfield and and I remember I was using a three sixty sky panel and I had it down to like five percent of its output. You know, whereas I started at like eighty five or ninety percent. So you know, those are always challenging and but then when you actually accomplish it, I mean we could have in theory gone back the next day, but it was a really big deal getting that runway and, and to accomplish it and, and succeed, you know, with this plan. It's, and it turned out to be a very appropriate Beautiful sequence for that uh, situation, and and same with the last time Ken Miles drives. Uh, we were out at the Honda test track out in Mojave, and also very limited on time, and the sun was setting, and we barely got one run in, and we totally improvised even the driving stuff. We got okay, we've got time for one drive around the track. We got a, our setups, and it turned out to be because the sun is setting very. Beautiful with flares and the sun setting and then we had one camera inside on Christian at the same time Getting these also beautiful interactive lights going across his face and ran back and put a camera on a long lens And you just pan that car around and it just became you know, it's uh, Because in the sequence the sounds fade away and Matt Damon's voiceover comes in where he talks about what it means you and the machine and then 7,000 RPMs and your body becomes weightless and 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 it's just visually, it really corresponded beautifully with that. And again, it was a bit, a bit out of necessity, you know, just trying to get it done in one day shoot. And turned out to be one of my favorite sequences, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic and it, and the proof is on the screen and uh, Faden, thank you so much for for coming on the show again. It was really great to right. uh, to get the update on Ford V Ferrari. Thanks great. so much. thanks
3: so much. I hope people will enjoy this film. It's kind of a dinosaur of movies, so old school Hollywood movie, no no superheroes and I hope it'll find a, a a wide audience. Uh, I think it will. Thank yeah. you so much. All right, cheers, thanks.
1: All right, that was Faden, Papa Michael. Thanks again for coming on. You're one of our, our two-timers club. We're, we should start the two-timers club for people who've been on twice.
2: I think the two-timers club should be looking to become the three-timers club because uh, because there's no one who's done that yet.
1: That's true. Well, I'm still waiting. It'll be for, a club of one. I'm waiting for Rodney Charters to come back for, okay. for, for, for his two-timers. Anyway, <laughs> thanks again, Faden. Awesome stuff and uh, great work again on uh, Ford v.
2: Ferrari. All right, Ben. Time to pay the bills. All right, I like paying bills. Uh, we got to thank our sponsor, Aperture, who makes really cool LED lights. And uh, you know, I've been accused of uh, talking about some of the most expensive products that different manufacturers make. And certainly, some of the sponsors we have the show make some very high-end, expensive stuff. Aperture has a nice gamut, including a product that is thirty-nine dollars. Thirty-nine dollars. What do you get for thirty-nine dollars? You get the Aperture AL-M9. Just rolls off the tongue. ALM9. The ALM9 is an LED light. That's actually nine LEDs. I think that's the nine and the, the M9. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the whole thing is about the size of like four or five credit cards. That's about it. You should call it the is. M9 Shyamalan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. Moving on. All so right. hey, the, the M9 Shyamalan. Now it's going to be stuck in my head. You ruined <laughs> yeah. it for me. The, the Aperture ALM9 is a powerful credit card daylight balanced led light you literally can slip this thing in your pocket it's got little magnetic holders with diffusion and it's got a uh, camera hot shoe mount so you can throw it on your dslr or anything else but this thing is so so light so small it's got an internal battery uh you need to add a little light to something you want to add a soft light it's a uh, very high quality uh we we gave them away at our end of year party we had uh, a week ago and uh, boy it's uh it's a fantastic little light that's
1: awesome. I need to check that out. I probably need one or two of those in my kit. You, you probably do.
2: And, you know, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the item for sale at Hot Rod Cameras and you can support the show and buy one from over there.
0: And now short ends. All right.
2: So, Ben, short ends. What is your short end this week? Uh, my short end is kind of a gripe. I'm gonna. Ooh, I'm gonna ooh, keep, keep you're, it a, you're going negative. Yeah, I'm gonna keep it a little short though,
1: mm. um, because I don't want to draw any more attention to the clickbaity sack of shit that uh, inspired me to to complain about this. <laughs> what was that? Well, it, again, I'm not gonna. I'm you're not, not gonna, gonna say what it is. I'm but not gonna say-, say what it is. But it, it, at this time of year, it happens every year. Uh, a bunch of clickbaity lists get listed by mm. otherwise respectable film uh, journalists. And it's their worst of lists, the mm. worst of year lists. And I mean, like there are things like the Razzies. The Razzies, yeah. Famously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that maybe I'm just getting old and cranky, but I'm sick of people complaining about stuff they don't like. Like, uh, I mean, I guess I'm literally complaining about stuff I don't like while I'm yeah, saying this.
2: That's right. You just got really meta here. You're it's, complaining about what you hate most. It's, 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 a, it's a paradox.
1: No, but uh, I, I think that it it's like a drawing attention to the wrong kind of movies B, it is drawing negative attention. So everyone who worked on these movies, from the writer, the director, all the actors to, honestly, the the grips, the PAs, the craft services person... Why are you going to make them feel bad about making a movie? If the movie was a hit and you're angry that it was a hit because it was bad, then, you know, who cares? But probably most of the films on these worst of lists, they're usually movies that underperformed anyway. And everyone would forget about them and let them be forgotten. Like, let them kind of have come out, underperformed and go away. I think that it's mean spirited to uh, to put them on a list. Yeah.
2: Put them up against the wall publicly shame how how terrible they
1: are yeah how dare you make a movie that did not delight
2: me go fuck yourself <laughs> You, you were, you are right now, you have become everything that you hate. So I, you, I you, yes. Uh, well, I, Wait, am I playing jazz music? Oh, okay. Well, see, so you also hate jazz music, <laughs> but it's like here, here it is. Like, uh, you're saying that you, you were have a giant gripe and complaint about people who make lists about giant gripe and complaints. You're complaining yeah, about no, the complaints. I'm, I'm
1: not listing them. I'm not telling yeah, yeah. you who, who I'm specifically complaining <laughs> yes, about. Yes, but you could probably name three right now. I, I could, I could name more <laughs> than three. And it, I mean, like, look, I, Everybody on earth is uh, the reason they call it clickbait is because, you know, we've all we've all been on IMDb and there was a link to something on ZergNet or something. And we clicked on it. And we're like, yeah, well, don't wh-? click on ZergNet. And I'm like, that's, that's the worst. <laughs> I'm like, why? Why isn't Nick Stahl working anymore? And then before you know it, you've wasted three hours looking at like listicle after listicle after listicle uh, written by people who probably went to a journalism school and were hoping to like be writing for the Wall Street Journal. But now they're writing goddamn listicles <laughs> about why Nick Stahl isn't working anymore.
2: It, it was probably actually an AI bot program that put it together for you. It,
1: it's quite possible. But I, f- I find it, I, I uh and I'm not like down ne- even necessarily on listicles. I just think that worst of lists, there's like a special circle of hell for people who sit around and ruminate on movies that are bad at the end of the year when really, you know, like the end of the year is Kind of when we're celebrating the best of the year, all the Oscar contender movies come out. You know, between November, and December, usually.
2: Yeah, if you weren't one of the best, just know that you're already one of the worst. That's, that's true. That, yeah, that, you
1: and you should be ashamed of yourself. Anyway, so that's <laughs> so that's so my short end. So self-loathing. Okay. So worst of lists are my short end, in in that uh, you should not read them. So
2: okay, so hey, uh, Ben, my short end this week is the movie Parasite. Oh, so it's awesome. I, I'm late to this party. A lot of people saw Parasite. A lot of people saw it in the in the, in the theater.
1: I saw uh, it in the theater. I I get to see no movie in the theater and I saw Parasite in the theater.
2: Parasite is I want to say it's a lot of fun. I don't know if it's actually a lot of fun, but I had fun. I mean, there's a lot of like Well, uh,
1: here's the thing. It's okay. a serious drama and it's awesome and it's 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 a great thriller, but it never at any point does it feel like homework. It doesn't feel like, "Oh, I'm watching this movie so that I can be a more cultured, interesting person." It is engaging all the way through
2: what I like about it is I didn't know where it was going. Oh and I, yeah. And I love movies that I have no idea what's going to happen next. That to me is the best. And if you know, if you can predict what's going on in parasite, you're better than I am. Cause I, I, I saw the setup. I saw where it was going. I did not see how it got there or what the final result was. I only named one thing in the, in the movie, which I can't even mention here because it'd be a giveaway. That is the only like predict slightly predictable thing that I got the rest of the movie. It was like, Wow. I can't wait to see what happens next. And the climax of the movie is also fantastic. It's like for me beginning to end, uh, the hype was worth it. I heard about, you know, people loving it at Cannes. I heard about it, uh, you know, uh, people on my, my Facebook feed saying, Oh my God, I have to see this. I finally saw it. And now I'm one of those people and I occasionally meet the person this didn't work for. Well, someone who's been on the show, he actually said to me, eh, it wasn't for me. I didn't get it. But, uh, extreme minority everyone else who uh, I know has seen it is is head over heels
1: yeah and it's the kind of movie too where if you're listening to us and you haven't seen it and you haven't seen a trailer don't yeah don't what don't yeah. Spoil any of, any of it for yourself. And I don't, I mean, like, no movie is everything to everyone. And it is something of a thriller. And and it's it, a little bit of a con movie, if it, you kind of like that sort of thing. It's not unviolent. There are going to be things that, it's if, true. if if that's the kind of thing you don't like, then steer clear of this movie. But I feel like for most people who are can, okay can, with it.
2: Okay with a little violence. Okay with a little, you know, danger. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and this okay is, with toilets overflowing. This is the filmmaker who made Old Boy and he made The Host. And, you know, he's made some some really solid films over the years. It's less genre than those films. But I don't really want to say more than that. And it is gorgeous to look at and uh, I've been hearing a lot of talk about it possibly being a contender for best picture just in the regular best picture category not best foreign language but best picture and I would have literally no problem with it being nominated or winning I would say that probably my two favorite movies I've seen this year are probably that and Jojo Rabbit and I, I would be happy to see anything happen to either one of those.
2: In the U.S., it's uh, only grossed about twenty million, but worldwide, *Parasites* at one hundred and twenty million. So, if, if you're one of those people who uh, look at validation from other people going to see your see this movie, a lot of people have gone to see it, and I, I think it's well worth worth your time. Also, and, you, sh- you shouldn't be looking to validation like that. You know what? There's uh, I I I know people who do this though. I know people though. They're like, "Well, how many screens is on? Uh, how many people have, have seen it?" And they, they will use that as a basis to decide.
1: I know also a lot of people don't like to watch a movie with subtitles and I understand it, but I feel like watching a movie with subtitles, it's like going to see a, a Shakespeare play that's really well produced. Is that like, it takes you a minute to kind of get into the, into the groove of it. And then after a few minutes, you don't even notice that you're reading the subtitles anymore. Uh, but all the more reason to see it on the big screen, not only does it command the big screen brilliantly and it uses the screen well, But uh, that's uh, I personally would rather see a subtitled movie on the big screen than uh, on my home television.
2: It has also already been nominated for three Golden Globes, which is cool.
1: That's awesome. So hopefully it'll uh, win all the awards. And, uh, you know, oh, also the same director made uh, Snowpiercer. That's right. And Okja, if I'm not mistaken. I never saw that one. Snowpiercer or Okja? Okja. I have not seen Okja, but I did see Snowpiercer in the theater. Really thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: And, oh,
2: actually, we should also throw this out that uh, Ford v. Ferrari also nominated for a Golden Globe. That just happened. So so that's pretty cool. It,
1: it's it's too late for us to talk about this as our uh, George Floyd close focus, but maybe for next week. But the complaints that all the movies directed by women were overlooked for Golden Globe, either as Best Picture or Best Director nominees, I think is, is a, a worthy thing to discuss. So if you're listening to this and you have a thought about that, I'd love to hear it.
2: Yeah. Send us a message. If you've made it to this point of the show and, you know, you want us to read a comment on the air for our our next episode, definitely uh, send us a message. Let us know. So, Ilya, who do we need to thank today? Let's thank our producer, Alana Cody. Let's thank our uh, editor, Ben Katz. Let's thank our composer, Kay's Alatrachi, who there is some percentage chance he's listening to this. Probably four percent. Four percent chance he's listening. That's better than zero. Uh, Anyone else we have to thank?
1: Just you and me, brother.
2: (laughs) All right. Where can people find you, Ben?
1: Uh, Go to benrockonline.com to find out everything you ever hope to know about me.
2: Uh, Find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, where you can buy all kinds of incredible camera equipment and stuff for making films. Including the
1: aperture light that was discussed on the show. Exactly. The
2: ALM9 Shyamalan, (laughs) which now that will never be out of my head. (laughs) I will always think of that. So. Uh, yes, but you buy it for $39. You won't regret it, so that's a lot of fun.
1: Anyway, uh, we will see you next episode of the Cinematography Podcast.
0: This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.